sister, you've been on my mind. Oh, sister, we're two of a kind. So, sister, I'm keeping my eyes on you. I bet you think I don't know nothing Except singing the blues Oh, sister Have I got news for you I'm something I hope you think that you're something too Welcome to Sup Media Reviews, the podcast that never needs spoiler alerts because it takes you back in time to relive the nostalgia of classic TV shows and films that you've probably already seen. I'm your host, Kiara, and each week I'll dive into the archives to bring you my take on movies and TV shows from at least 20 years ago. From cult classics to forgotten gems, I'll review them all and give my honest opinion on their impact and whether or not they still hold up today. Join me as we revisit the iconic characters, memorable moments, and timeless themes that made these shows and films so special. So take a break from adulting and get ready for a trip down memory lane with Sup Media Reviews. What's up, Home Slices? Thanks so much for tuning in to Sup Media Reviews. I am your host, Kiara, and it is Black History Month. In February, we're going to be reviewing and celebrating Black movies and stories from four different genres, historical drama, romance, horror, and comedy. So today, we're going to be focusing on a very famous historical drama, The Color Purple. Originally a Pulitzer Prize winning novel by Alice Walker, published in 1982, this story has taken many forms. Today, we're going to be reviewing the 1985 movie adaptation that features many Many of the stars that we know and love today, like Whoopi Goldberg, Oprah Winfrey, and Danny Glover. Now, since then, The Color Purple has been a long-standing Broadway musical, and just recently, a film of the musical adaptation was released and, of course, has high praise. Now, for a few years of my life, I actually considered this movie to be my favorite movie, so I'm really excited to dive in. As always, here are a few fun facts about the movie. This movie was Oprah Winfrey's film debut. Oprah's character, of course, is named Sophia, and her speech at the dinner table was an ad lib prompted by Steven Spielberg in the middle of filming the scene. He asked Winfrey to express to Celie how she felt that day when she saw Celie in the store as Sophia was shopping for Miss Millie. Now, this movie was also Whoopi Goldberg's film debut. She won the part of Celie in her audition for Steven Spielberg by doing a comedy act that she had developed about a stoned E.T. getting arrested in Oakland, California for possession. The audition was attended by many of Spielberg's famous friends, including producer Quincy Jones and Michael Jackson. How crazy is that? All of those famous people in one room. The second fun fact is that before production, Steven Spielberg felt very insecure about being director of this film. In fact, his initial response to Quincy Jones's requests was no. Spielberg felt that his knowledge of the Deep South was inadequate and that the film should have been directed by someone of color who could have at least related to the struggles faced by many Black people living in the South. Quincy Jones then argued, no, I want you to do it. And besides, did you have to be an alien to direct E.T., the extraterrestrial? 
from back in 1982, Spielberg appreciated his friend's logic and decided to take the role as director of the film. Now, how do you all feel about this? I actually agree with Spielberg. And later on, we'll talk more about other people who agree with his first sentiment that someone who knew more about <laughs> the subject matter actually direct this film. But I also know that people like Quincy Jones understand that by having a famous and white director direct this film adds legitimacy to the production and it also maybe adds some additional budget some additional critical acclaim what do you all think i agree with spielberg's first sentiment that someone else might have been better able to capture the spirit of the book if they were more tied to the source material but i'm curious let me know what your thoughts are in the comments now, the final fun fact is that Steven Spielberg heavily pursued Shaka Khan to take the role of Suge Avery. However, Khan admitted to being too afraid to take the role at the time. How cool would that have been to have Shaka Khan as Suge Avery? That sounds amazing. <laughs> I love Shaka Khan. But anyway, if you want to check out The Color Purple, you can watch it on Max as of the recording of this episode. Now, this is the part where I talk about my personal connection to this film. I read the book in high school. And I've watched the movie over and over again so many times. And I also saw the recent musical adaptation featuring Fantasia and Taraji P. Henson. I love this movie so much because it focuses primarily on the women. It tells the tale of women who are in abusive situations with men and what happens to them as a result, but really focuses on how they grow, evolve, and help each other through it. There are also so many kind of side stories. This story isn't just about one person. It really is about this ecosystem of a community and families that are all kind of woven together. So we get multiple plots, right? So we have themes of like Black entrepreneurship, uh, both Harpo and Ceiling. And even Mister was a farmer, which is a form of entrepreneurship as well. So that is a really nice theme. We have also aspects of religion and forgiveness. There's a little bit of lesbianism in the film. There's themes about standing up for yourself, being isolated from your family, helping other to realize their worth, the dissolution and reconnection of toxic relationships and how they can grow and transform. There's mistresses, there's being a stepmom, there's pretty politics and a whole lot more. This story makes us laugh and cry and it makes us angry. And this story written by a woman touches us all. And I am no exception. There's just so much going on with this movie. And it explains why it's over two hours, <laughs> why it's over two hours long. Now, my other connection to this story is that I'm just black. I'm black, y'all. I'm black. In the black community, this story is a staple and it has so many quotables that if you're a black person, you have heard or even said before, okay, you told Harpo to beat me, get the molasses out your ass. That time I seen you in the store with Miss Millie, you show Liz ugly, it's gonna rain on your head. Like all of these little sayings, eyes married, not all of those sayings are a part of the black consciousness. And I'm curious if the youngest generation even knows the origin of them. But the fact that the Color Purple musical adaptation has come out probably means that the legacy gets to live on for a little longer and that even some of the younger people in the Black community will know the origins <laughs> of some of these famous sayings. So it is a part of the Black zeitgeist. And yeah, like it just is what it is. And finally, I do want to say that I feel like I can identify with a lot of the characters in this movie. I have previously felt like Seely before. I have also felt like Sophia. I felt like Suge. I've, 
<laughs> I've experienced a lot of different feelings and depending on where I am and what's going on in my life at the time, I could see myself in all of these characters. So I really love that kind of personal connection to the actual women in this story. So I'm really excited to share my perspective on the color purple. So let's get into it. All right, in the opening scene of the film, we hear Celie and her sister Nettie doing a patty cake type game. And they're doing this little, oh, I guess it's some type of nursery rhyme. Me and you must never part my da. It's a, like I said, a little nursery rhyme with the patty cake situation. It's something kids do. They're in a field of purple flowers. They're playing around. They're being kids. They're having a good time. The music is light and playful until we see that Celie is actually pregnant. And their father calls them back to the house for dinner because their mom had prepared dinner and their dad tells Celie that she has the ugliest smile this side of creation, which is crazy considering that we later find out that the baby that she is pregnant with now is actually his child. I don't know that we emphasize this enough in the story, but the incestuous and abusive nature of her relationship with her father is the start of Celie's traumatic history with the men in her life. Yeah, this is crazy. The way that he talks to her and treats her is crazy. I will get into that more as the story goes on. Next, we see that it is the winter of 1909 and Celie is in labor with this child. Now, childhood Celie is played by actress Jasretta Jackson and Nettie is played by, I probably won't say this correctly, Akusua Busia. Okay, they both do a great job acting in this film and you can see the kind of sisterly bond that they're supposed to have. I'm curious as if they are still friends to this day, if they still talk to each other, I don't know. But I could just feel the kind of love from them through their acting in this movie. Now, the scene where she's in labor is pretty quick, but long story short, Celie has a baby that she calls Olivia. It's a girl. And Celie holds the baby for two seconds before her father comes in to take the baby away to what we later find out is to sell it. Child trafficking, another factor of this movie that we do not emphasize enough. I don't know the history of selling children in the early 1900s. It's crazy to me that it would come across anyone's mind to sell a child. And we're going to talk later about who they sold the child to, like what in the actual heck. I do also want to point out that they use an awful plastic baby doll smeared in maybe Vaseline. <laughs> The baby isn't moving. The toes of the baby doll isn't even separated. It's obviously a baby doll and they're not fooling anyone. So I don't think that they had a, a high effects budget or something. I don't know. That baby was a doll. <laughs> Anyways, Celia and Nettie embrace each other as their dad takes the baby away. Literally, the baby was in her arms for just a few seconds. And he tells them, you better not never tell nobody with God, it kill your mama, which is a very normal thing for abusers to say. They don't want you to tell anybody about that. And I'm trying to figure out, her mom obviously saw that she was pregnant and the baby just doesn't exist anymore. So what did they tell the mama that the baby didn't make it? What exactly was she not telling her mama? Like, I don't know. Anyways. <laughs> So already like just three minutes into the story, there's tons of awful stuff that has happened to Celie. And in the next scene, it gets even worse because we see Celie, Nettie, and their dad pulling a wagon that has a casket on it. We hear Celie's voice narrating and she's praying to God and giving us some background on what's happening here. We find out that Celie is only 14 years old. She has two children already, Adam and Olivia. Olivia is the one that was just born. So presumably she had Adam when she was 12 or 13, which is, I can't even... I can't even imagine that. These two children were conceived by her and her father because her mother wouldn't sleep with him. 
he said something along the lines of like, you're going to do what your mama wouldn't. And it's like, what? <laughs> she wouldn't make children for you to sell? What? I don't understand y'all. Anyways. And now her mom passed away. She died presumably from a broken heart. Who knows? But after her mother's passing, her dad acts like he can't stand Celie now. And now he's starting to get that predatory look in his eye with Nettie. And Celie's faith is something that's like a big deal in this movie and is a big part of the reason why she is who she is in contrast with some of the other women in the story. So next up, we are at church at a wedding. This is the wedding of Celie and Nettie's dad. The choir is humming a tune during the wedding that'll come back later. <laughs> that one. So like I said, Celie and Nettie's dad is getting married to what I believe is a 13-year-old girl named Gray. At the church, we see a man eyeing Nettie. He is a widower with three kids since his late wife was killed by her boyfriend. It's another instance of violence perpetrated by men in this story. But the young ladies notice that he's staring at Nettie and they call him Mr. Now it is snowing and Mr. comes by on a horse to Celia Nettie's house and they speak to the dad asking for Nettie's hand in marriage. He seems really, Mr. seems really preoccupied with having a housekeeper and a babysitter. And he also thinks that she's pretty. The girls are listening to the conversation from inside the house and they seem relieved when the dad says, no, you can't have have Nettie, okay? Unfortunately, the dad offers Celie instead and gives the worst sales pitch ever. He says that she's not fresh and she has been spoiled twice as if that wasn't his doing. He calls her ugly and that basically Mr. could do whatever he wanted to do with her with no complaints from Celie. Celie comes outside and does a spin for Mr. as he never really looked at her before. He was always too focused on Nettie and he ends up taking her home with a dowry of a cow. Something else I want to point out is that a random boy, five or six years old, is on the porch while the men are having this conversation about which daughter Mr. should marry. I don't know if he lives there. I actually really don't know who he is. But throughout this whole movie, there are kids running around every freaking where and we don't know who most of them belong to. I understand that most of these kids are maybe too young to go to school. And I understand that daycares probably weren't a thing in the early 1900s. But like, where did all these kids come from? Whose kids are these? <laughs> Anyways, the point I'm trying to make is that an impressionable child is observing two men haggle over teenage children for marriage. Not only is it disgusting, it is not something that a small child should be watching and learning from. Also, how can you have a good marriage when your husband wanted to marry your sister and only took you as a consolation prize? It's giving Leah and Rachel if you know, you know, okay? But anyways, it's not a great start. It's an awful start, actually, the worst start to a marriage. We don't even see that they actually have like a legit wedding. We know that they are husband and wife, but I, there's no indication that there was an actual wedding, which is low-key kind of crazy because there are like five weddings in this movie and Mr. and Celie's is not one of them. It's hilarious. But as Celie gets to her new home with Mr., which is actually a really big house. The house that Mr. lives in is two stories. It's pretty large. It's on a lot of land that he uses to farm. Like he was low key out here getting it, okay? I'll give him that much. Mr. introduces Celie to her new stepkids. <laughs> there are three of them. The two youngest appear to be girls, but the oldest is a boy named Harpo. And when Mr. says, say hi to your mammy, your new mammy, Harpo says, she ain't my mammy. And he throws a rock and hits her in the head and like draws blood. So 
Yeah, it's not starting off good. Her stepchildren don't respect her. Her husband doesn't want her. It's just an awful beginning. And considering she's only 14, it's so awful. (laughs) Jesus. Anyways, we get a brief suggestive sexual scene of Mr. doing his business on top of this 14-year-old girl and getting off of her spent, which is crazy. I don't like sexual scenes or depictions that involve people who are underaged. But I am considerate of the fact that it is like the early 1900s and that age differences were looked at a little bit differently. I don't care for those types of scenes kind of regardless. But while she's laying there, she mentions the picture of Suge Avery that's next to the bed, knowing that Mr. would rather be with her and wondering if Nettie, her sister, is safe. Now, the next day, Celie cleans the mess out of the kitchen, which is awful. It's in disarray. It has rats in it. There's dirt and dust everywhere. The house hasn't been cleaned good since, you know, his first wife was murdered by her boyfriend. And everything about this house has to be revitalized and brought back to life by Celie. And she does it. And she does a good job at it. When Mr. gets home after she has cleaned the kitchen, I didn't hear any praise or appreciation from him, but he puts his dirty boots by the clean dishes on the table. And Celie is combing the hair of one of the daughters, which apparently hasn't been combed since their mom passed away. He made no attempt to comb his daughter's hair. So when the little girl keeps screaming while Celie is trying to run a comb through it, Celie is like, I can't shut her up. Because, you know, this is hurting her because Mr. had instructed her to shut the kid up. So Mr. smacks the mess out of Celie saying, like, you need to do what I say. So this is the first instance of physical violence that we see. It is literally Celie's like first full day of being married and taking care of this household. And it didn't take very long for things to get physical. And it sets this precedent that if Mr. doesn't get his way, Celie gets hurt. He's also being a very poor example for the children, which we, of course, will get to more of that later. So in the next scene, it is spring of 1909 in the town center. And Celie spots a baby that she believes is Olivia, her daughter, with a well-dressed woman that turns out to be the wife of a pastor. Now, something else that we don't talk about a lot is a pastor purchasing children. <laughs> I don't know how Celia Nettie's dad construed the sale of a child. But if you're a pastor and you are purchasing children when there are like literal orphans in the world, orphans have always existed, y'all. They have always existed. When they could have kind of like adopted a kid from an orphanage or something. Why are you buying children? I just, It's 1909. It's a different time, I guess. I guess. But it's still not appropriate. <laughs> It's not appropriate. So they're inside this little general store or whatever with a lady who's holding the baby. And so Celie manages to hold the child for a second and actually confirms that the baby is Olivia. And she kind of has the baby torn from her arms again. And I'm like, how heartbreaking is this? But also the clerk in this little general store is racist and aggressive. And for a split second, I felt like the lady who was holding the baby, we learn her name later. I think it's Corrine is uh, her name. I also think that that lady might've known what was up in that moment, just from the look on her face, but we're not going to say nothing. Okay. Next up, we see that Nettie arrives via horse and buggy with the mailman. The mailman is kind of used in this story to show the passage of time. As time goes on, he upgrades his vehicle. (laughs) 
<laughs> and so we see that across time as vehicles get invented and they get fancier and they change a little bit, the mailman's mail delivery vehicle also changes. So that's a little cute. But anyway, Seely is excited to see that her sister is there. And Nettie says that she left home because their father, who again now has a very young wife, was also trying to assault her. So Nettie was like, I'm getting out of here and I'm not going back. So Nettie left home because of the advances of her father and decided that she was never going back. And she is there with Seely asking if she can stay with them. And Mr. is like, yeah, she can stay. She family now. But he obviously has ulterior motives. I also want to point out that multiple times in this movie, Mr. positions himself in a way that he can only see Nettie or that we can only see Nettie kind of showing his like hyper focus on her and his disregard for his wife, who is helping him succeed and helping take care of his children and making sure that his life is better and improved. So that's something to point out. In the next scenes, we see Celia and Nettie spending some time together doing various activities and having important conversations. Now, I don't know how long this time period was that they were actually able to spend time together, but the most notable things that happen are Nettie telling Celia to stand up for herself, particularly against Mr.'s kids, Nettie being harassed more and more by Mr. Nettie and Celia making fun of Mr which is actually hilarious. What did she say? My shoes need a sign. My <laughs> the cows need a milk. <laughs> so they make fun of him, which is hilarious. <laughs> and they also create a plan for Celie to learn how to read so that they can write to each other before Mr. makes his move on Nettie. So Mr. actually overhears this conversation between the two of them. Seeing their sisterly connection is really sweet. But I want to point out that another thing that we don't really talk about is that as the oldest child, Celie had to crawl so that Nettie could run, okay? Celie took a lot of stuff from a lot of people for a number of reasons. She wasn't conventionally attractive. She was socialized to not have a voice. She was made to work really hard. Some people could argue that religion could also play a role in why she was so docile and unwilling to stand up for herself. But she had to work so hard that she couldn't even go to school and get an education. Whereas Nettie, was able to go to school to get an education. She had a different attitude than Celie. And some of that could have been because she didn't want to be treated the same way that Celie was. And also because they emphasize over and over again that Nettie is more physically appealing than Celie is. And so, you know, one of the things that Celie says is like, I don't know how to fight. All I know how to do is stay alive. So in a lot of ways, Celie took one for the team when it came to her and her sister. But watching the sisters interact is actually really sweet. They really love each other. They do these reading lessons. They carve their names in a tree. They play in the fields. It's a really sweet moment. So things are about to change, obviously. If things are going well, and they don't go well for long when it comes to Celie, okay? As Nettie is walking to school one day with her books that are secured with a belt, Mr. tries to have sex with her on a path, and she clocks him in the nuts with her books. Good job standing up for yourself. Do what you gotta do. Unfortunately, this is the end of Nettie's stay at the house, and a very emotional scene depicts the desperation of the sisters to stay together and the anger of Mr. at being rejected. Rejected men are scary and dangerous y'all okay so I also want to point out that women who stand up for themselves in movies are often punished by men 
or by life, I guess. Mister, who of course is played by Danny Glover, literally has to physically tear the sisters apart. And there's a part where he has to beat their hands from around this kind of wooden pole. And he drags Nettie off of the land and basically throws her onto the dirt road. And they are screaming and crying. And it's just really an emotional scene. Nettie starts to scream why and Mister throws rocks at her to get off the land. And Nettie says, nothing but death could keep me from it. And they do the me and you must never part. A little patty cake thing as Nettie leaves for the foreseeable future. Celie asks her sister to write. Again, this scene is sad and horrendous, okay? In the next scene, Celie has to shave Mr. and he is preparing for the arrival of Suge Avery. She doesn't arrive just yet, but Suge Avery is played by Margaret Avery. I'm sad that I didn't see her in more things. She did such a great job in this movie. I actually don't remember many other things that she was in until years and years later. But as Celie is preparing to shave mister he threatens to kill her if she cuts him there's a lot of tension in this scene there are a lot of kids on the property like 10 of them and only three belong to mister and i'm like i don't know where all these kids are coming from y'all but suddenly the mailman arrives it distracts Celie, and she accidentally cuts mister and he almost backhands her but he's so excited about the mail that he runs over to the mailbox instead and is really excited about getting a letter from suge now the letter that he gets from suge says that she actually couldn't make it this time but that she hopes to see him soon. Mr. of course is pissed off that his mistress isn't coming to see him, but he gets even more mad when Celie asks if a letter came from Nettie. And so Mr. yells at her saying that he's rigged the mailbox to make sure it isn't tampered with and that it's none of her business which mail came. So essentially, girl, ain't no mail ever coming from you, okay? It's very threatening. Again, she's 14, he's towering over her and she knows that she will probably never hear from her sister again, basically. Mr. goes out because he, of course, is upset, presumably to drink. And we get this time lapse of Celie reading Oliver Twist. We see the wind blow a flyer stating that Suge Avery would be performing at the Lucky Star in Eatonton, Georgia on Thursday. And now the young Celie is an older Celie who is being portrayed by a young Whoopi Goldberg. Now, it's the summer of 1916. I also want to point out Celie keeps saying yes, sir, to her husband as if she's a servant and it's they're not married. It's awful and disgusting. Okay. But like I said, it's the summer of 1916 and <laughs> Mr. is going crazy and he's frantic trying to get ready to see Suge Avery at the Lucky Star. We also see that Harpo is an adult now and he's being portrayed by Willard E. Pugh. Since they've gotten married, about seven years have passed. So Celie is about 21 years old now and Harpo may be in his late teens. I never really thought about how close in age Harpo and Celie were, but it's a low key kind of crazy that how close they were in age. Mr. is in a frenzy getting ready to see Suge and Celie is just calm and collected but she's also really enamored by Suge too. She's been looking at this lady's picture at the side of the bed for seven years wondering like what's so great about her okay. Mr. has the nerve to ask Celie's opinion on what jacket he should wear and then he picks the opposite of what she says she likes. And then we see that Celie has kind of mastered this system with Mr. She knows what he needs before he realizes he needs it. And I think it goes to show how smart she is because this really is like a defense mechanism to keep herself as safe as possible. Celie is a fantastic homemaker. She has a lot of skills, including sewing, cooking, cleaning. I'm assuming that she helped to also plant things. So there's the farming aspect. She probably helped tend to the animals. She helped raise the children. I mean, this lady is doing it all. And also she has a caring heart. Now there is a part 
in this particular scene that me and my sister always laugh at. When Mr. slides on his shoes at the top of the stairs, he almost busts behind and he slips a little bit and it is so funny, okay? It's hilarious. Celie does not seem bothered that she was helping her husband prepare to meet another woman, a woman that he clearly loves more than Celie. Celie doesn't care. <laughs> As Celie is sweeping later in the day, she finds a wax paper note from when Nettie was teaching her how to read. We hear a narration from Celie about how Nettie never writes and that she basically assumes that Nettie is dead because she hasn't heard from her since. It's super sad. But next up, we meet Sophia, y'all. Harpo is in love with a big woman named Sophia, who is portrayed by Oprah Winfrey. And when Mr. meets her for the first time, he's not very nice, as Sophia is already pregnant with Harpo's first child. Mr. accuses Sophia of a lot of things, like, hmm, maybe that baby isn't Harpo's, or maybe you're using Harpo because your daddy kicked you out and you ain't got nowhere to go. But then Sophia starts to make a good point that Harpo don't have anything of his own. Everything Harpo has, from his shelter to his clothes, is because his daddy bought it for him. So what am I using him for? He doesn't have any resources. <laughs> Sophia also observes how Celie is treated like a servant and appears to be kind of disgusted with the way she's being treated. And it's giving very like, wouldn't be me or couldn't be me. <laughs> That's kind of her attitude. But Sophia does say that Celie knows how to treat a guest and she leaves in a huff. And what I will say about this movie that there are really some interesting transitions in the film. And just then there's this kind of metaphorical tug of war going on where Harpo is kind of being pulled in two different directions. Sophia is getting up to leave and she's calling him saying Harpo. And then on the other end, his dad is saying, Harpo, don't you move a muscle. And there's this tug of war. Harpo doesn't know what he wants to do. Does he want to be with his lady? Does he want to be with his dad? We don't know. But then the scene transitions quickly to Harpo getting married to Sophia. So there's a lot of weird kind of uh, cinematically interesting transitions in this film. And <laughs> Harpo's really nervous at his wedding. He appears to have kind of cold feet. Maybe he's nervous that he's going against his father's wishes. Who knows? But Harpo can't even kiss the bride well before her sisters whisk her away and celebrate and she's, you know, I was married now, you know, she's really happy. And she is actually holding the baby in her arms during the ceremony. And after the ceremony is over, we see that Mr. was asleep the whole time and Celie nudges him to get up. And when Mr. gets up to go to, up to his son, he can't even muster up a real hug for him. It was awkward, like they had never hugged before. And I wouldn't be surprised if they had never hugged before. It's actually kind of crazy. And when Mr. gets ready to go over to Sophia, I guess to congratulate her as well, her sisters are like, nah, don't even try it. <laughs> it wouldn't be genuine anyway, so I agree with them. In the next scene, Harpo is trying to fix up a house for them to live in, but Sophia keeps kind of interrupting him, asking him to hold his own baby. He is upset that she doesn't mind any of his commands because he's like, you know, leave me alone. I'm working on this house. Don't you see what I'm doing? And she's like, come down here and hold this baby so I can talk to Miss Seeley. So yeah, when Harpo asks his dad for advice on how to get Sophia to mind him, his dad obviously says to hit her and knock the very confident Sophia down a peg. Now, when Harpo sees Celie, he kind of rhetorically asks, what am I going to do with Sophia? And Celie responds that he should beat her. Now, I want to point out that Celie and Mr. gave him this advice, but Celie is coming from a place of being battered into submission. Okay, she is traumatized. Mr. is coming from a place of an oppressor. <laughs> so the advice is very different. I find it interesting that Sophia confronted Celie and maybe not so much Mr. considering they both gave him the same advice. 
Now, next up, Sophia goes up to Celie so mad. She's stomping and running through the fields. Not running, but walking really hard through the fields. And she gives the famous speech about how she wasn't safe in a family full of mans and that she couldn't believe that she had to fight in her own house and how she loves Harpo. God knows she do, but she'll kill him dead before she lets him beat her. And at the same time, Harpo is trying to convince his dad that his black eye came from a mule and not from Sophia defending herself. And that's the difference between Celie, who takes the abuse, and Sophia, who gives it right back. So when Celie tries to tell Sophia that things will be better in heaven, Sophia says that Celie should bash Mr.'s head in and think about heaven later. So we see two different sides of the coin here. What's interesting is that every lady that Celie interacts with is somewhere opposite to her. Nettie, Sophia, and later Suge all have different approaches to dealing with the men in their lives. Celie's approach is really faith-based, internalized, long-suffering, and has a lot of trauma along with it. She's, like I said, kind of been beaten into submission. And that means that everyone gets to be happy or get what they want except for her. But next up, we see that over the course of their physically violent relationship, they had two more children, Harpo and Sophia. And eventually, Sophia just got so tired that she left Harpo and took the children with her. And then we also see that Mr. gets a letter from Suge and ignores Celie when she asks if a letter came from her. So she's still asking about the letters and he is still ignoring her and saying that, you know, no, nah, ain't nothing came for you, basically. Now, next thing we know, a weird storm happens. And in this story, it's treated like an omen. And interestingly enough, Mr. brings home Suge in a wagon. <laughs> when she realizes it's Suge, Celie tries to spruce herself up, but her face is actually covered in dirt from the kids playing in the mud. They were doing some kind of mud mask situation. But when they get Suge together and Suge and Celie are face to face, Suge tells Celie, you surely is ugly. And she is either clearly drunk or sick or both, okay? But of course, Celie is affected by this because she's been looking at Suge for years now and it has come to kind of admire her and, and there's a lot of mystique around Suge. And so to have someone that you look at like that to call you ugly, it's actually kind of... <laughs> kind of bad, right? So we see that Mr. is feverishly trying to do things to make a sick Suge feel better. Suge is mean and angry and she's like, I don't want a man who can't say no to his daddy. I need a real man. And, you know, she's just talking to him all bad and he leaves the room and even puts out his pipe when she says, I don't want to smell that pipe. And Celie is amazed that Mr. listens to this woman and she's also amazed that he has a first name that's not Mr. Because she hears Suge call him Albert. Can you imagine being married to somebody for seven years and not knowing their real name? She didn't know this man's name was Albert. Does his daddy not even call him Albert? That's crazy. That's crazy, y'all. When Suge instructs Mr. to get Celie to make her some breakfast, she refers to Celie as that thing, which is so rude. Mr. decides that he wants to make breakfast for her and, you know, won't allow Celie to do it. It's, I guess, a gesture of love. Celie decides to sit in a rocking chair to observe Mr. try to cook for the first time. He doesn't know how to work anything. He doesn't know where anything is. He's, again, frantic. And I don't know why he thought that he could not cook for his whole life and then just get in the kitchen and be good enough to do it for someone that he cares about. <laughs> but anyway, when Mr. grabs kerosene because he can't operate the wood-burning stove, Celie books it as a small explosion goes off. <laughs> but Mr. does finally put some stuff on a plate for her and he brings Suge a burnt breakfast and she throws it out of the room up against the wall in the hallway. Now something else me and my sister used to laugh at 
is that when Mr. runs out of the room after being berated by Suge, he kind of runs into the wall that the food slammed up against and he runs his hand along the wall where there's like some weird sauce or something on the wall and he licks it off his hand. He tastes it. <laughs> it's something that's very easy to miss, but it's actually very funny. But anyway, Celie makes a really good breakfast for Suge. There was pancakes. There was like a, a ham steak situation thing too and she sends it in the room but suge actually takes it with no complaints so this is the first of many nice gestures that Celie does for suge to kind of turn things around in their relationship now next up suge is in the tub and Celie is kind of tending to her suge is being pretty mean and she's drinking and they talk a little bit like, do you have children? And, you know, ask a few little questions here and there. Suge has children, but she does not have custody of them. They are actually with her parents. And she gets emotional when she thinks about her poor relationship with her father. Now, Celie brushes Suge's hair and she hums a tune to kind of soothe Suge, who is, of course, very emotional right now. And it's the same tune from earlier from that wedding at the church. Mm -hmm. That one. And this is a bonding moment. Mr. actually hears them singing together in the restroom. At this moment, I don't know what he's thinking, but like I said, it's a bonding moment. Now, suddenly an older, very small, light-skinned man with a cane comes to visit and it's Mr.'s dad. We can see that Mr. is still very intimidated by his father, despite his big age and the fact that he has like maybe a foot in height as a size advantage over his father. But his dad admonishes him for bringing Suge into his house, saying that she's a woman with loose morals and that she has nasty women's disease. And when Celie overhears the dad speaking poorly about Suge, she spits in his water as revenge. And his dad even says that Celie is nice for letting her husband's hoe sleep in their house. <laughs> the use of the word hoe in the early 1900s is hilarious, y'all. <laughs> that is funny to me. The dad actually does drink the water, which is gross, but this may be the first time that we actually see Celie do something mean-spirited or in defense of someone. Even though she's not standing up for herself, she's standing up for Suge, and this is the first time we're seeing her do something like this, right? And so it is the summer of 1922, Celie is 27 years old and Harpo is probably in his earlier mid-20s. Now Harpo decides to start his own business. Again, his wife and children are gone away living their own lives. So he is just helping his father with the farm and doesn't really have anything to fulfill his life. So he decides to open up a juke joint, which is basically him disassembling his own house to, to build a club that's on the water. I don't know what type of body of water this is, if it's a lake or whatever, but the juke joint is over the top of some water. So a juke joint is a den of sin where all the people with the loose morals can go to drink liquor and gamble and, and have sex. Well, they don't have sex there, but they like, it's basically the club <laughs> in the early 1900s, y'all. And so we see a character named Swain who is portrayed by Lawrence Fishburne. He is Harpo's friend who's helping him with the construction of the juke joint. The guys are even advertising Suge Avery's performance at the juke joint on a cow. It's cute. And again, who doesn't love black entrepreneurship, y'all, okay? 
So it's the opening night at the Juke Joint and Suge Avery is killing it, okay? She's wearing a headdress and a shiny red dress and every man in the place wants to be with her and all the ladies want to be her. And Celia is just kind of staring kind of blankly. I can't tell what she's thinking. She looks very sad to me. She doesn't seem to be, I would presume that she would like be more so in awe of Suge and her performance and how engaging she is. But to me, it comes across as that she kind of doesn't want to be there. Now, one of the patrons makes fun of Celia clothing and I'm like okay maybe it makes more sense why she doesn't want to be there <laughs> but we also see that Harpo has a new girlfriend y'all we can talk more about her later also church is happening at the same time that the juke joint opening is going on so apparently these places are close enough and loud enough that the church's service is being kind of interrupted by the noise coming from the juke joint so after Suge finishes her first number, she sings a song that she calls Miss Seeley's Blues that was inspired by that time in the tub when they were going, mm. she sings the song, sister, <laughs> but the lyrics are sweet and she does this performance for Miss Seeley. And the gist of what the song is about is that she wants Seeley to know that she's worth something and that, you know, life isn't very long. So you need to enjoy your life now and don't let anyone, you know, get in your way. Seeley feels really special and even sticks out her tongue at some of the other ladies to show that like, yeah, she did this for me. You are jealous. <laughs> <laughs> which was actually kind of funny. So next thing we know, Sophia comes in with a new boyfriend named Buster. Buster, I believe, was a professional boxer. He's a big guy. The men, both Mr. and Harpo, seem preoccupied with the fact that she isn't home taking care of her kids. He said, where your kids? She said, they at home, where y'all? <laughs> She's basically saying, don't worry about me. And I just love that energy. Apparently, only single women come to juke joints and whatever. But speaking of kids, we absolutely get no backstory on Mr.'s two younger kids who I think were both girls. The only person that we really focus on is Harpo in his story. Where are the two younger girls? I just, where are they? <laughs> but Harpo whisks Sophia away for a second and they dance and Harpo just kind of melts into her arms. You can tell that he still really loves her. But Harpo's new girlfriend, Squeak, is upset to see that Harpo and Sophia are dancing. So things start to get crazy when Squeak insults Sophia and then slaps her. <laughs> the funny part of the situation is that a lot of people's antennas go up, okay? Because when Squeak insults Sophia, somebody's like, mm, y'all, I'm headed out. <laughs> All right, I'm out. <laughs> and then when Squeak, I think, slaps Sophia, the guy on the piano was like, well, time to go. And he heads out too. <laughs> Even a dog like slowly walks about it there. <laughs> I don't know why that's so funny to me that these people are like, mm, things are about to get rowdy. I need to get up out of here. I feel like that is probably pretty true to life. But of course, you know, Sophia is not going to stand for anybody to put their hands on her. So when she gets slapped, she, of course, punches Squeak into a hole in the floor so that she lands in the water and a bar fight ensues. Celia is kind of in awe and is like kind of having a good time watching everybody fight. <laughs> and she ends up having to get swept away by Suge. So back at the house, Suge and Celie are playing dress up and Celie's very shy. She won't do her shimmy. She keeps covering her smile. So Suge is like, you need a smiling lesson. And I'm like, girl, what is that? <laughs> but Suge sings a funny song to get Celie to laugh. And she has her stand in front of a mirror while she's laughing and smiling. And it's basically like a lesson in learning how to love herself. So Suge is like, you know, it's time for me to go and get out of here. It's a good time of the year. Like I'm gonna head out. And so Celie is like, 
girl, where you going? She reveals to Suge that Mr. Beats her because she's not Suge. And so they sit down and have a conversation about Mr. And Suge says, like, if I ever got married, it would have been him, but he weak. <laughs> and she says that she loves sleeping with Mr. And Celia can't believe that Suge actually enjoys that because when it happens to her, she just pretends that she isn't there. And she describes it as he's doing his business. And so Suge says, well, Celie, you're still a virgin, which I think is her way of saying that Celie has yet to have consensual sex, which for my estimation is true. Okay. So Celie actually confronts Suge for calling her ugly, but Suge says it was only me because I was jealous that you were Mr.'s wife. And I'm like, what a grave misunderstanding. Why can't wives and mistresses get together and have these conversations? <laughs> That's a rhetorical question. Don't answer that. I just think it's funny that these two ladies are kind of commiserating on their very different opinions of the same man. But anyways, she tells Miss Seeley that she thinks she is beautiful and she kisses her. And Seeley even turns her face so that Suge can kiss her again on the other cheek. And then Seeley kind of smiles and lower her guard. And in the most subtle way possible, they're kissing each other and we are made to believe that they engaged in some adult consensual activities. But Seeley is even more so charmed by Suge in the same way everyone else is. So Suge apparently is a little bi which is interesting. I think it is very bold to sleep with both a husband and a wife to sleep with each of them. That's crazy. <laughs> that is freaking crazy. We don't talk about that either, but let's move on. So Celie, of course, is even more enamored with Suge than before. And so Celie follows Suge to the local church where Suge is speaking to the pastor who turns out to be her father. He ignores her as she's talking and she's kind of reaching out to him emotionally. And she even sings a little of God is trying to tell you something. You can hear the desperation in her voice. Her voice is breaking when she's singing. Her dad is upset and crying and ends up walking away from her. We don't talk about this, but her mom and dad are also caring for her children. So in addition, to his kind of shame about the fact that his daughter, you know, has children by multiple men and that she's known for being loose and she's singing in juke joints, like that whole kind of like religious shame. He is also taking care of her children. And I think her not being there for her children is also a factor that we don't really talk about a lot either. So it's probably a lot of disappointment around that too. Now, in the next scene, it's time for Suge to leave and Celie starts packing up, hoping to leave for Memphis with Suge. She's like, this is my chance to get out of here. <laughs> okay. And so she wants to start a new life. So she actually gets confronted by Mr. Who's asking her, what are you doing? And she's like, oh, I ain't doing nothing. And he's like, that's not what it looks like to me. So her attempt to pack is kind of thwarted and she's actually made to carry the bags of Suge to this old school bus where Suge's band awaits so they can head off to Memphis. Celie tries to tell Suge what she wants to say, like, let me go with you, girl. Let's get up out of here. But instead, she says that she'll miss Suge and she faints as the bus rides away as this was her one opportunity to get up out of there. Now the story gets even worse, y'all, because in the next scene, Buster, who again is Sophia's new boyfriend, is filling the tank on a car. And Miss Millie, who is the wife of the mayor, is just gushing over how clean Sophia's kids are. But when Miss Millie asks if Sophia will be her maid, Sophia says, hell no, <laughs> twice. <laughs> the white folks cannot believe that she said that to the mayor's wife and all hell breaks loose, okay? The mayor comes over, asks Sophia what she said, and right as she's about to repeat it, he slaps her. Sophia, who don't suffer no fools, 
cannot resist herself and she punches the mayor in the town center, the busy town center, as the white folks surround her. Okay. <laughs> the mayor gets punched to the ground. The white folks are yelling slurs and yelling at her. They're all around her in a circle and she's yelling for someone to get her kids out of there. Swain is in the area. So he comes over and helps grab the kids. And finally, a deputy, it looks like, comes over and pistol whips her and she falls on the ground. And yeah, that's that. It's awful. So we do like a little time lapse to the fall of 1930. It is about eight years later and a battered Miss Sophia gets out of jail just to be made Miss Millie's maid anyway for what seems to be the rest of her life, I guess. Yeah, this is awful. Okay, this is an awful situation. Miss Millie apparently got a car from her husband. She's an awful driver, but Sophia is teaching her how to drive it. Millie and Sophia go to the store with a list. And we see that Sophia has suffered probably a number of beatings while she was in the jail. She's been in jail for eight years and things just aren't the same. When she comes out of jail, she has gray hair. She has an issue with like a swollen eye that seems to like kind of be permanently swollen that kind of might inhibit her vision. She's walking with a limp. There's like a lot of things that are physically wrong with her. And so when they go into the store to pick up all the things that Miss Millie needs, Sophia is struggling to read the list, but Celie takes the list from Sophia and helps her to get the groceries anyway. They don't even say a word to each other, but it's this kind of act of kindness that Celie with a good heart <laughs> does for her friend Sophia, right? And so when the shopping trip is over, Miss Millie gets in the car with Sophia and says, I'm going to take you to see your kids on Christmas. You ain't seen them in eight years. I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to drive myself back home. You'll spend the day with your kids and I'll come back and get you, right? And so Sophia, of course, is, you know, happy for this. And so Celie and Sophia exchange this meaningful look where Celie gestures for Sophia to keep her head up. Also, when Miss Millie turns the car back on, everybody jumps out of the way because they know she can't drive. It's hilarious, okay? It's very interesting the type of privileges you can get when you are married to the mayor, I feel like in other worlds, she wouldn't be able to drive a vehicle, <laughs> but whatever. I want to point out again that Sophia's hair is gray and that at this point, Celie has very pronounced under eye wrinkles, okay? If it is Christmas of 1930, Celie is only 35 and Sophia is probably somewhere between three to seven years younger. Why did they make them age like this? They are in their mid to maybe early to mid thirties. Why have they aged so significantly? I understand that we're trying to depict the passage of time, but the drastic aging in this movie does not make sense to me. And I'll talk more about that later. In the next scene, we see Sophia spend all of five minutes with her family. Even Harpo and Squeak are there and Squeak appears to be pregnant before Sophia has to ride home with Miss Millie, who's incompetent driving and fear of black men prevents her from being able to drive home alone. Like I said, virtually all the strong women in this movie get punished, but no one gets punished harder than Sophia. And can we talk about the torture of being in prison for eight years for hitting the mayor and then having to work for him for the foreseeable future, especially with the limited mobility and vision that she now has after being beaten in jail. It's awful. Like I feel really bad for Sophia and her situation probably shook out the worst. Now time passes by again, y'all. It is the spring of 1936 and Suge is back in town, y'all. And interestingly enough, she's married to a new man. 
if my calculations are right, Suge has been gone for 14 years. They haven't seen Suge in 14 years, y'all. Celie is now 41 years old, and both Celie and Mr. are excited to see her, but are stunned to meet her new husband. He's a nice man named Grady, who's very outgoing and handsome, and is somehow okay going to visit a couple that includes a man that Suge loves having sex with and a wife that she has also had a sexual relationship with. What is this? <laughs> What situation is this? I don't get it. And mind you, Mr.'s previous wife was also murdered by her boyfriend. What is this? Everybody just have boyfriends and mistresses? I don't know, y'all. Anyways, Celie has herself and Mr. pretend to have coals to mask their upset, okay? But now it's Easter. It's Easter time. And Grady and Mr. are getting drunk and commiserating on how they both got to have Suge. And Suge thinks that it's funny to hear the men talk about her like this while they are drunk. But Celie is kind of not amused or whatever. But when the mailman honks, because he's now in a car, to notify them that the mail is there, Suge goes to the mailbox because she's waiting on some type of contract for Memphis. Now, on her way to the mailbox, she sees her dad going by in a horse and buggy and she's like I was married now and he of course ignores her so she goes to grab the mail she sees a letter from Nettie Seeley's sister so Suge snatches Seeley away while the two guys are still drunk off their behinds and they read this letter from Nettie notifying her that her sister is alive she is in Africa and she's been sending letters for years and over time, she only sends two letters a year, hoping that like things kind of get lost in the shuffle or that the Christmas or the Easter spirit will change Mr.'s heart, which of course it never did over the course of 27 years, y'all. We also find out that Nettie is the au pair, that's what I'm calling her, to Celie's biological children and their adoptive parents. I don't know. I guess they're adoptive parents who are religious missionaries. Now, Celie and Suge are in tears. We're all in tears, okay? It's been 27 years since she has seen her sister and she knows she's not dead. Like what a relief, y'all. So when the men go off towards the woods to go to the juke joint, Celie and Suge tear the house apart looking for the letters. And we can already see that Celie is kind of reclaiming some of her power with her blatant disregard for tearing up the house. Now they find letters, the letters from Nettie under the floorboards along with Mr.'s pornographic material, which <laughs> is kind of funny. But literally, they find 27 years worth of letters. The biggest question I have regarding these letters is why didn't he destroy them? Why didn't he just like throw them into the fire? Why keep them? Is it a power thing? Like, did he keep them to say like, I don't know, why didn't he destroy them? I don't know, whatever. But Celie goes on a journey, okay, of reading these letters from her sister. And we get a picture of what life has been like for Nettie and the kids. Celie also gets pretty attitudinal with Mr. these days, as she has become really upset with him over keeping this from her for again, 27 years, y'all. So she just is like low key, not really down to take any more of his crap. <laughs> Long story short, a really stereotypical depiction of Africa ensues in this scene. Nettie is in Africa to help care for the kids while Corrine and Samuel set up a school in a village for the people who I believe are called the Olinka. Now, Olivia, Celie's daughter, has a friend in the village named Tashi. And Tashi can't go to school because the Olinkas don't believe in educating girls. So Olivia teaches Tashi everything she knows after school is out, just like Nettie and Celie did. So I think that Celie is happy to see that Olivia has a kind heart and that she's very smart as well. Things in Africa were okay until the white man decided to build a road through the village that they were helping, the Olinka village 
village and most of the village got destroyed and torn to the ground. Corrine was very upset by this and ended up dying from heartbreak. And Nettie is hopeful that she and the kids will return to America after they settle an immigration issue. Now, Celie is so enveloped in reading these letters that she's being forgetful about her normal household duties. Mr. Finds her reading a letter out in front of the church and he hits Celie so hard, causing her nose to bleed, saying, I've been calling you for an hour. It's time for you to shave me. This is the wrong time, mister. <laughs> when Suge hears from one of the 1,200 kids that is going from property to property in this town, that Celie is about to shave mister, she runs super fast to stop Celie from slitting his throat. <laughs> While the shaving scene is happening, we simultaneously see Tashi and a young boy in Africa preparing for a scarification ceremony. Apparently, the Olenka do scarification that are like markings, particularly on the face and other parts of the body that are symbols similar to like a tribal tattoo things along those lines and so both of these scenes are happening at the same time they both build up a lot of tension and Suge gets to Celie just in time before she's about to put that razor to that man's neck mister suddenly realizes that Celie almost killed him I wonder if he recognizes that the power dynamic is changing <laughs> She's not afraid of him anymore. Now, the next scene is my favorite scene in the whole movie, y'all. I love this scene. They're having Easter dinner and the family is gathered around. Huh. Y'all, did this all happen over the course of a day? Is she reading all the letters in the same day? Because the way that the movie kind of wove the story, I feel like she at least spent a number of days reading all of these letters. But I guess perhaps all of this could have happened the same day. I don't know because they're having Easter dinner. Or did I make that up? Because we saw her stuffing the turkey for Easter and then making Easter eggs. And then the dinner was like large and extravagant again and had like a lot of family members at it. So I presumed it was still Easter. Maybe it's just they came Easter weekend. I don't know. Y'all, I'm getting caught up in the timeline. Anyways, let's just say it's Easter dinner <laughs> and the family is gathered around a lovely dinner that obviously was prepared by Celie. Celie is quiet and upset. Sophia is confused and Shug speaks up to Mr. and tells him that she and Grady have to go and that Celie is coming with them. And when Mr. is like, Celie, what's wrong with you now? She calls him a low down dirty dog and that she needs to see the world and that his dead body would be a great welcome man. <laughs> Y'all, like I said, this is my favorite scene in the movie, like hands down, I love this scene. It's almost a roasting session. This is an Easter roast, y'all. She goes around the table and she does the little roasting hand and she roasts every, every, almost everybody at the table. <laughs> All the men at the table get it. She does the little roasting hand over at his daddy saying that if you were a better dad to him, he might've made somebody a half-decent husband. Oh, and then she did the roasting hand at Harpo saying that the white man wouldn't have got Sophia if you weren't trying to control her, which I think is like, is that true? Is that a stretch in logic? I don't know. While I feel like that's a stretch, I feel like Sophia could have still been married to Harpo and told Miss Millie, hell no. <laughs> Jesus. She ends up confronting Mr. about Nettie, revealing that she knows that they are in Africa, which is a surprise to Mr. And she says, when Nettie and my kids come home, we're going to get together and we're going to whoop your ass. <laughs> she calls Mr. some dead horse shit. She, posts, <laughs> she gets the roasting hand on Mr. 
And every, oh, Jesus, it's funny. People are laughing, but then Sophia started laughing. She kind of comes to life because she was lifeless at the table at first. And she kind of laughs until she cries. And she talks about how she sat in the jail and almost rotted. And she sympathizes with Celie about like feeling like a caged bird. And she thanks Celie for everything that she did for her. And like about the time she saw her in the store with Miss Millen. And it's a, a sweet moment of just all the women appreciating each other and roasting the men at the table. It's funny. <laughs> It's hilarious, okay? And even Squeak says she's going with Suge and Celie and declares, my name ain't Squeak, okay? My name is Mary Agnes. And <laughs> Mr.'s dad is like, Mary Agnes, Mary, who gives a damn? <laughs> that is so funny. And so, of course, Mr. starts to get mad and he's like, you know, you can't take a dime of my money and X, Y, and Z. And she says, did I ever ask you for anything? Celia's is like, did I ever ask you for anything? Not even your sorry hand in marriage. So Mr. and her go back and forth, kind of roasting each other a little bit. And he's like, you're ugly, you're skinny, you're shaped funny. All you're fit to do is be Suge's maid. And you're not even a good cook. And this house ain't been clean good since my first wife died. And Celia kind of ignores him. And she's like, any more letters came for me? And he said, could be, could be not. Who's to say? And then Celie gets real mad and she grabs that big knife from the turkey and puts it to Mr. throat and says, till you do right by me, everything you think about it's going to crumble. She basically curses him, which is hilarious because it kind of works. <laughs> His life low-key falls apart after she leaves. Sophia is like, girl, do not kill him. He's not even worth it. And so she decides that they need to leave quickly. Suge comes and grabs her. Grady is like, thank y'all. We need to be out of here. And as she's leaving, Mr. of course is still trying to insult her. And at one point he gets ready to hit her and she puts her hand up and she curses him again. As they leave, she says, I'm poor, I'm black. I may even be ugly, but dear God, I'm here. And he says, you'll be back. Okay. And y'all, Celie got her freedom. Okay. And she got a lot of stuff off her chest. She roasted all the men at the table. <laughs> and I just am really happy for her. Okay. And her liberation for the most part came from another woman helping her. So I love this scene. It's hilarious, y'all. It's hilarious. Okay. So next thing you know, Celie is wearing fancy clothes on a train to Tennessee. And she's imagining a young Nettie running along the train. So things are already getting better for her. So it is the fall of 1937. And it's just over a year later from that Easter dinner. And Mr. of course, isn't doing too well. His house is in disarray. The farm animals are everywhere. Mr. is getting wasted and falling asleep on the kitchen floor. His dad comes to visit him to see the state that he's in and what the house looks like. And his dad said like, I must have just raised you wrong. All you're doing is sitting around drinking. You're spending more time at the juke joint than you are attending the fields and you aren't doing anything to make it better. And Mr. says like, this house isn't filled with any life or laughter or children. There's just me here. He's lonely. And his dad suggests, you know what? All you need is a young woman to come in here and clean up and cook. And, and Mr. for the first time kind of stands up to his father and essentially kicks him out of his house. <laughs> And then I want to say that Mr. Dad is mean and misguided and old fashioned, but he is very funny. I don't know this actor's name, but the guy who portrayed Mr. Dad is actually quite hilarious and did a really good job. But next up, we see Mr. at the juke joint. It's closing time. Nobody is there except for Swain, Sophia, and Harpo. They're washing the glasses. They're, you know, shutting things down. There's a jukebox there playing Miss Seeley's Blues in the background. And we see Mr. is kind of sad and pathetic. He's super drunk. But then he says that he's glad Harpo and Sophia are back together. And that kind of throws Harpo off a little bit. I think it's something to kind of indicate that... 
he is kind of recognizing the error of his ways, even though he is still engaging in self-destructive activities. But next up, we see Celie come back to town from Memphis in some fancy clothes as the man that she knew as her father and the father of her kids has passed away. In Nettie's letter, Celie learned that her real father was lynched and that her mom married this guy two years later, meaning that the father of her children is not also her father. It's only slightly better. <laughs> That's only a slightly better distinction. Still awful. But we also learned that the old man died on top of his young wife. Gross. Okay. We also find out from the surviving wife that Nettie and Celie inherited their childhood home and a store from their real father. All the money went to the new wife, but they got the property, which, you know. That's better than the money <laughs> to me, apparently. So Celie, who inherited a store, opens a business making pants. These one size fit all pants. The name of her store is Miss Celie's Folk Pants. They have unique patterns. And women were not wearing pants at this time. So she's not only a master seamstress and an entrepreneur, she's also a visionary, y'all. So <laughs> while... Harpo and Sophia are there trying on these pants. We see Mr. lurking outside of the shop for a second, like a little weirdo. So that's strange. Next up, in a different scene, we see Celia and Suge walking through a field of purple flowers. I mean, they actually talk about the color purple and how everything in the world wants appreciation and admiration. And uh, I think Suge says something along the lines that I think it makes God mad when we walk through a field and we see the color purple and we don't or we aren't filled with wonder, basically. But inside, we know that Celie and Sugar are both really sad because there are these two kind of pieces of their lives that haven't been quite made right. And so in the next scene, Suge and a bunch of folks are all at the juke joint on what we presume is a Sunday morning, and she's singing Miss Celie's Blues. And the music is so loud that the church can hear them. So the choir, kind of in response, sings, God is trying to tell you something. And so it starts with this young lady, yes, <laughs> yes, if I were you, I would say yes. <laughs> but Suge gets distracted by the choir singing that song. And so she starts singing, God is trying to tell you something, which is the same song that the choir is singing. Speak, Lord, <laughs> speak to me. <laughs> so she just kind of gets wrapped up in the spirit. And so she starts walking towards the church, also singing the song. So we have the choir and the lead singer and the choir singing the song as well as Suge Avery singing the lead parts of the song as well and so there's this merging of these two worlds that we have the juke joint participants who went there to get drunk and hear some good entertainment and some secular stuff and then we have the church people who are wrapped up in the spirituality and the church service and so there's this kind of meeting of the worlds that's happening and the singer in the choir is a good singer, but the experience and the kind of hurt that is in Suge's voice adds like an element to her performance of the songs that kind of overshadows the singer in the church. So I feel like they're taking a lot of acoustic liberties <laughs> in this. <laughs> like, I really don't know how far or close the juke joint was. But them being able to hear each other this clearly is almost unrealistic to me. But I'm like, okay, we get it, okay? So the people in the church realize that Suge is coming and singing along. And so Suge busts up in the church singing along with all of the musicians and the other people from the juke joint. And it's just like a big party because the song kind of reaches this point that, of this really joyful part where everyone's kind of singing along. God is trying to tell you something. God is trying to tell you something that it's very joyous at this moment right now. 
And so when Suge bursts in the church and she goes up and she faces her father, she hugs him and she says, you know, sinners have a song too. And he embraces her and she finally gets some acknowledgement from her father, which she has been searching for for years. Celia is there, but she's kind of dead behind the eyes because... Suge has gotten her situation resolved and the thing that she's been longing for, but Celia, of course, has not, right? And so Mr. gets a letter in the mail from an immigration office. And so Mr. decides that he's going to get some cash together and he heads over to the Office of Immigration and Naturalization and he pays for Nettie, Samuel, and the kids to come home. So in this final scene of the movie, Suge, Seely, Squeak, Harpo, who else? I think Oprah's, not Oprah's, Jesus, Sophie's. <laughs> Sophia is there. Sophia's sister and her husband are there as well. There's like a lot of people low-key hanging out at Seely's house. So Suge and Seely and Squeak see a car approaching and they don't know who it is. They aren't expecting anybody. So from a distance, Seely puts on her glasses because she's getting older and Seely sees fabric flying in the wind and she gets closer to see that it is Nettie. Nettie and Seely run to each other. So excited to see each other. Again, it's been like 27 years, y'all. And they kiss each other on the mouth, which I think is weird. And they are just in disbelief and in shock and in awe. And they just have so many emotions after not seeing each other for like 30 years. Everybody is crying and happy that this family is reunited. Celie gets to meet her son, Adam, and his wife, Tashi, which up until this point, I didn't realize that Tashi is the same little girl that was Olivia's best friend back in the Olinka village. So Adam married his sister's best friend. That's crazy, right? And then she also meets Olivia and somehow none of them speak English. And I'm like, why not? Depending on how old Adam was at the time Olivia was born, these children probably would have been somewhere around one and three years old when they left America. Their parents spoke English. Their aunt Nettie speaks English. Why don't they know English and whatever language they were speaking? It doesn't make sense to me that the children don't know English and can't communicate with their mother in English. Does it? Am I tripping? <laughs> It doesn't make sense. We see Mr. off in the distance, kind of satisfied that he finally did something nice for his wife of almost 30 freaking years. I think that he's on the road to recovery, though, because, you know, the curse is over, right? She said, until you do right by me, everything you think about is going to crumble. So this is him doing right by her. And now he'll get to have success again, right? I don't know. Who knows what happens? What they don't tell us in the movie that I actually learned in the book and thought was super weird is that Nettie ended up marrying Samuel, the pastor, after Corrine died. And I was like, girl, no. <laughs> no, okay, because if Nettie was younger than Celie, she was 12 or 13 when she became an au pair to Samuel and Corrine, meaning that he basically watched her grow up and turn into a woman. And so he basically married the kid's aunt. Anybody else think this is weird? That's weird. I don't like that. Okay. I like that they kept it out of the movie, but in the book, I was like, girl, that's crazy. Okay. <laughs> Nettie marrying Samuel, basically her employer, gross. I didn't like that. Okay. The credits roll as Celie and Nettie patty cake into the sunset with Mr. and his horse heading out in the background. All is well and Celie's life is now complete. She back with the family and they don't even have to get together to whoop Mr. 
<laughs> That's the end of the movie, y'all. At the end of every review, we ask if the movie or show holds up today and if it is worth a rewatch. I'm going to say mostly yes and yes. Now, regarding if the movie holds up today, the story of women as survivors is a tale as old as time. But there really is a single element of the way that this story is told that does not hold up well for me. And it's the fact that it's directed by Steven Spielberg. And while he did an overall good job cinematically, there's just something that can't be captured by a man who is directing a story that is mostly about women, a man who is not from the South directing a movie that takes place primarily in the South, a man who is not Black talking about a story that is about the depiction of Black life. There's just something that is not captured by this white man doing this movie. I also found that the depiction of Africa felt stereotypical. And I feel like it's just like a little bit of a disservice that we don't get to view the story through the eyes of someone with more experiences like those of the characters. Now, I understand that Quincy Jones knew that Steven Spielberg had just having his name on this movie alone would add legitimacy to it and perhaps some additional budget for the film. But I can't help but wonder how the story could have been different if the director was a Black person or a Black woman or even a Southerner. Like, I don't forget know like the makeup in this movie is not very good like it doesn't hold up for me a hundred percent and I also would venture to say that Stephen aged the characters way too early based on the timeline a black director would know that black don't crack and would not give Sophia gray hair when she's in her early 30s or severe under eye wrinkles to Celie when she's only 35 okay so <laughs> some of those elements are kind of lost on Steven Spielberg okay but otherwise the story itself and the outstanding acting performances hold up really well we got Oprah we got Whoopi we got Danny these are all icons who went on to have some seriously amazing careers. Oprah's a billionaire and her company was called Harpo Studios, which is Oprah spelled backwards, which is low-key kind of crazy. We have Whoopi Goldberg, who of course has like a series of movies. I've actually reviewed Sister Act and Sister Act 2, which she was in. She has an EGOT and she is on The View now. She's still relevant. We also have Danny Glover, who has gone on to be in a bunch of other <laughs> movies. People love him. He's great. He was also in Dreamgirls. I want to say that might have been the last movie that I saw with him in it. But he has all of the, the movies with Mel Gibson. I can't remember the name, but we love them. We love them. They're all icons. And just seeing him here in their early years is fantastic. And getting to witness, I know this was Oprah and Whoopi's first movie, Danny, maybe not so much, but it's just part of why we love them, really. And as far as rewatchability, that's definitely super high for me personally. I personally rewatch this movie about three times a year and it's always great. I will say that because of the intense like domestic violence and super serious themes that it's something that you can't rewatch if you aren't really in the mood to watch some sad and depressing stuff. So for me... Because I can identify with like certain things in the story, again, not domestic violence, not some of the other stuff that goes on, just because I guess I'm kind of like wired in a certain way, I can watch this movie in particular and not be totally bummed out. <laughs> so the rewatchability for me is high, but if you aren't into stuff like this, maybe no, okay? Generally, as sub-media reviews, we try to keep things light and fun, but the drama in this movie is absolutely worth it for me. I really enjoy this movie and acknowledge its place in the Black zeitgeist, you know, and it's not perfect, but it is really good.
Now on Rotten Tomatoes, The Color Purple received a critic score of 73% and an audience score of 94%. Now at first I was a little shocked that the critics rated it so low, but upon further investigation, it looks like most of the critics had feedback that the director should have been someone who had more of a connection to the source material and that the movie kind of sanitized the grittier novel version of the story and doesn't have the same spirit of the story that Alice Walker was able to put into the book. And while I agree with both of these points, I think 73% is a little harsh. <laughs> but thank you so much for tuning into Submedia Reviews where I reviewed The Color Purple. Did you rewatch this movie recently? Does it hold up for you? Did you see the new one? Please share your thoughts with us on our social media pages on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. We want to hear from you. Join us next time for our second Black History Month movie review when we discuss the 1997 Black romance Love Jones. You don't want to miss it. Peace out. Thanks for listening to Sub Media Reviews. I hope you enjoyed our trip down memory lane just as much as I did. If you have any suggestions for movies or TV shows you'd like me to review next, or if you just want to share your thoughts on today's episode, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Pinterest at Sub Media Reviews and on SubMediaReviews.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And if you have a moment, please leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. Your feedback helps me improve the show and spread the word to new listeners. So until next time, peace out, home slices. Peace out.